Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Fifth Youth Forum um, of the school year. I'm Nigel Gore. I'm a sophomore at Solon High School and a member of the City Club of Cleveland's Youth Council. Um, I am pleased to introduce today um, our forum, uh, a conversation focusing on women's experience through immigration. This year, immigration has been at the forefront of policy and news all over the globe. Although these decisions have life-altering impacts on millions of people, women bear disproportionate risk as refugees, immigrants, or displaced people while traveling for safety or to access limited resources. Women are at great risk for sexual and gender violence. Victims of human trafficking in the United States are mostly immigrant women. And oftentimes, during family separations, the familial, the familial burden falls on women. However, regardless of whether they are leaving home or leaving their country, women are not a burden. Immigrant women are most likely to own their own business than American-born women, are more likely to become naturalized citizens than men, and they drive the naturalization process and have shown resilience to overcome adversity and create new lives for them and their families. How can we learn from their stories of immigrants, refugees, and displaced women? What burdens do they share? And what are their successes? In honor of National Women's History Month, thank you for joining us today as we explore women's role in immigration and the unique challenges they face. Joining us today are local and national experts who will share their thoughts and perspectives. Our panel include Lisa Splinwinski, a staff attorney that focuses on immigration work for the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland. The Legal Aid Society of Cleveland secures justice and revolves, resolves fundamental problems for those who have low income and vulnerable by providing high quality legal services. Chrissy Stonebreaker Martinez, the co-coordinator at the Interreligious Task Force of Central America. The IRTF is a Cleveland-based interfaith group that promotes peace and human rights in the Central America and Colombia. In, in addition to the IRTF, Ms. Stonebreaker and Martinez solves on the Executive Committee of Disciplines Peace Fellowship. The National Council of the Fellowship of Reconciliation and is the chair of the Northeast Ohio Fair Trade Network. Sister Ann Victory, steering committee, steering committee member for the Collaborative to End Human Trafficking. The Collaborative's mission is to educate and advocate for the prevention and abolition of human trafficking while connecting services on behalf of trafficked persons. Here to guide us through the discussion is youth council member and junior at Shaker Heights High School, Sam. I turn the form over to you, Sam. Thank you, Nigel. 
So uh, let's start off today by asking, um, what unique challenges do women face in immigration? Uh, Ms. Polinsky, if you'd like to start. Sure. So um, to explain a little bit more, um, just briefly, um, as um, the student mentioned, I am an immigration attorney with the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland. Um, we offer free civil legal services to low-income people. Um, so the population that I've worked with um, throughout my career, immigration population, is um, almost exclusively um, immigrants who have been victims of crime, both here in the United <coughs> States and in their home countries. And the vast majority of that population has been women. Um, so in my experience with working directly with um, immigrants in that population, um, they, I should start by saying maybe that all immigrants um, experience a lot of issues um, here in the United States, but I would say women in particular um, seem to have um, maybe less access to jobs and education and are taking care of children and again are, um, in my experience talking to them, have been the victims of really horrific abuse, um, being targeted by people, being the victims of physical assault, maybe by um, partners or husbands or boyfriends, um, and then also being taken advantage of in work, for example, um, by not getting paid their wages, being worked or forced to work in bad conditions. Um, so. Again, a lot of immigrants face those, but women in particular seem to be more vulnerable to those um, abuses. Well, uh, before I start answering the questions, yeah. I think the topic um, warrants uh, a disclaimer. The, the issues that we're dealing with uh, and the victimization that has happened is really at times very gruesome, so if you need to tune out or step away at any point or turn off your device, device that you're listening to this on, um, whether that's your radio or your YouTube channel, um, just so you know, the, the, gruesome, the gruesome details, um, I have to say them blatantly, right? So uh, we are an organization that works on addressing the root causes of migration, particularly from Central America and Colombia. I myself am a Colombian and have experience with the process um, in my family. And so we're looking a lot at what's happening in um, the country of origin for a lot of immigrants. And what um, the, the folks who are coming to uh, the US southern border, the border with Mexico, are mostly coming from Latin America, mostly coming from Central America, right? And um, from, uh, uh, from, and from Mexico. <clears throat> and uh, the places that we focus on, Honduras, El Salvador, uh, in particular, have the highest rates of femicide in the world, actually. And femicide is what happens when people are murdered, um, like homicide, um, but they're murdered specifically for being women, for being female, for being femme. Um, and so that is one of, the, one of the particular factors. Another factor is that um, there's extreme poverty, um, there's extreme uh, organized crime, both uh, from the state and from um, outside forces, and almost always, like over 90% of all women who make the journey from Central America to um, to North America uh, or or um, or to other places to seek asylum and refuge, uh, these people are almost certainly going to experience uh, sexual violence and or domestic violence. And so, a lot of women will take. Um, uh, emergency contraception, uh, what's called here colloquially 
um, as plan B before making their journey because they know that the chance of them being raped during their journey is very high and they don't want to then also have to deal with um, figuring out a way to care for an additional human um, in, in addition to, to their own needs. Uh, and so that's some of the things that people are that people are facing on their way to to seeking refuge and asylum in, in other places. Well, I would say as one who works with human trafficking every day uh, that immigration and human trafficking do have a crossover. Uh, not that all immigrants are trafficked, and we have to be cautious about that, and not that all uh, trafficking happens only to uh, people who immigrate. We know that a lot of our U.S. citizens are also facing the horrors of being trafficked. And so if we think it's only happening to those who are not U.S. citizens, that's not the case. Many of our own citizens are also being trafficked. The things that make immigrants vulnerable are sometimes pretty obvious. Uh, they're coming from often a place where they have been already abused and they're forced to leave their country because of poverty or violence or some reason that they are coming for a new life and for safety. And they can easily get tricked into thinking um, by somebody's promise that they're going to have a wonderful job and it's going to be just great here and nothing bad will happen to them. And from speaking with refugees at Migration and Refugee Services here in Cleveland, one of the things that they are horrified to find out is that it happens here too. They thought they were leaving this kind of violence and abuse by leaving their country, and then they find it happens here too. So that makes them very afraid, not only for themselves, but for their children. So it's a huge issue for all of us, and uh, whether it's sex trafficking that gets all the headlines or labor trafficking, which is also very complex, and we, I don't think we've begun to scratch the surface on that one yet. So how have, these challenge, how have these challenges changed over time under different administrations and immigration policy and things going on in their home countries? How have these challenges that women's face changed? I'm an immigration attorney for three years, so um, that's not very long. Although to me, sometimes it seems um, like forever. But um, <laughs> I would say just in that brief um, time, the United States has immigration laws. It has had immigration laws for many years now, ever since we've become a country. Um, and we are in charge of what those laws can be, right? Um, so they are the way they are now, but they've, you know, they've been different in the past and they can be different in the future. Um, I would say that the way they have changed most recently from what I've seen with my clients is um, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of people here without legal permission in the United States. I think um, a lot of people understand that, many millions of people. Um, and the way we treat those people, again, is up to us. Um, so recently, um, there's, I've seen um, a, a rise or an uptick in enforcement against people who are here without status. Um, I should say briefly to make it very clear that being here without legal permission, so being here undocumented, is not a crime. I'm going to pause. Everyone listen to that. It's very important. It's not a crime. Um, crossing the border without permission is, is a crime. 
technically. Um, but that it's the act of crossing the border, and then once the person, mm -hmm. if the person is not you know, prosecuted federally, that's then being here just without papers is not a crime. So um, when you're talking about immigration enforcement, um, you're talking about people who um, are not here legal or do not have a legal reason to be here, um, and they get put into immigration um, proceedings, which is called deportation proceedings. Um, those proceedings give the immigrant an opportunity to prove that there's a legal reason for them to stay here in the United States. Um, so I'll just say quickly to dispel some myths, like I'm an immigration attorney. I don't just like go and like make up reasons for why people should be here you know, every day. Um, that would be so easy, I feel like, but unfortunately, that's not how it works. Um, I help people enforce their rights under the immigration system as the laws work right now. Um, so I think if, or if you think about it, there are maybe between 9, 11, 15 million undocumented people in the United States. The numbers kind of depend. Um, and there seems to be increased enforcement against all of those 11 million people. Um, it, when we have limited resources, um, sometimes you have to, it would make more sense to choose uh, who you target for enforcement. Um, and a lot of my clients, um, like I said, are mothers who have been victims of crime, either here in the United States or in their home country, and have families um, and are living just normal lives day to day. Like I grew up in a family with a mother, and they, I see my situation in their families as well. Um, and when the, the mother or the parent gets put into deportation proceedings and is, is deported and can never see their children again, that's um, a, a difficult outcome sometimes. And it doesn't have to be that way, like I said. Um, so I guess to answer your original question, um, the, the change I've seen is um, just harsher consequences against um, people that have really really lifelong and devastating sometimes um, consequences in people's lives that, again, doesn't have to be that way. Um, <clears throat> we, the current, uh, administ the, the current iteration of uh, enforcement is called Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and it's a part of the Department of Homeland Security. But um, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement uh, body, the legal body, the government body that exists now, actually was uh, created after 9-11. Uh, and so we know that um, before we had a body called um, INS, Immigration and Naturalization Services. And if you look at just the two names uh, of enforcement, you can see a big difference in this, in this Obviously, you all know that the, this um, Immigration and Customs Enforcement has been around since post 9-11, so it's gone through three different presidential administrations. Um, but Immigration and Customs Enforcement is about enforcing um, uh, laws that are created around uh, uh, artificial or arbitrary borders. And uh, Immigration and Naturalization Services sounds more like how can we find a way to make it, to make um, being uh, included in U.S. American society um, more welcoming. It sounds more uh, welcoming just as a as a body because naturalization services sounds like the end goal, whereas uh, customs enforcement sounds like the end goal is really just um, enforcement, law enforcement. Um, uh, ex exploiting their power. So that's one, one big difference. Um, the Obama administration was called the deporter-in-chief by um, 
by uh, lots of dreamers, uh, DACA recipients, people who have uh, uh, status based on their uh, what's called deferred action for childhood arrivals they because they were childhood arrivals before the age of 18 they came to the United States um, and so that was uh, one difference it's just that increase 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 right and as uh, Lisa right Lisa has already stated that has continued in this administration as well um, and one new practice uh, the practice of family separation um, and that goes in many different directions right People who are deported are separated from their families as well, as Lisa's already defined. But then there's um, a whole new uh, type of enforcement where people are currently children, people under the age of 18, are currently in um, immigration detention facilities that are much like prisons and they're run by for-profit um, companies. I visited one called Tornillo in um, over the change of the year um, in December and January. And I know I have, I, we have friends in Homestead, Florida, who are also looking at another facility that has housed thousands, um, detained rather, thousands of, of children. Uh, and so all of these different, um, these are just some of, some of the examples I think I could go on and on. But before the questions get too uh, far out of, um, before we get too deep into the questions, I wanted to pass around this folder because there's a, a flyer um, that our organization has created around immigration that if you want more information, you can grab. And there's also a sign-in sheet. Uh, if you're interested in more information from me later, I would be really happy to send it to you. So um, I'll give that to you. Thank you so much. I would say that the because of the intersection of human trafficking with immigration, there is concern, of course, knowing that any kind of human trafficking is rarely reported by the victim. It's not a self-reporting sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Most victims don't even know what to call what's happening to them, and so they don't say. And they may, be, have, been, may have been so threatened that something very bad would happen to them or to their families that they're usually keeping it quiet. They don't readily come forward. Add to that the fact that they are immigrants from another country and may not have status here, they're even more afraid because one of the threats is you'll just get deported. And right now the climate is not very friendly toward people that come from other countries. So what do they do? It's a hard thing. So it's a hidden crime already and this makes it even more hidden and often more disastrous for them because they've been taken advantage of not only in their own country but perhaps here as well, and they're too afraid to come forward to, to say what's going on. Certainly would be afraid to talk to law enforcement about it, um, in many cases, because in their country the police were corrupt, so why would they tell a police officer? That makes no sense to them. So they hold back on saying that and suffer because of it, and law enforcement then has a tougher time figuring out who's really abusing whom and how do we help the person who really needs the help. So it's a challenge every day. So this is obviously a very important and sensitive topic, but oftentimes the debate around it is, is very hard line of either swinging from you know, building the wall to abolish ICE. So how can we add more nuance to it? What uh, levels of nuance would you see, like, like to see added to it? Ms. Victory, if you would like to start this time. One of the things I think we have to look at is the facts, because the statement has been made that thousands of people are being trafficked across our southern border. Is that true or not? 
Are there that many people coming across the border who are being trafficked? Or look at the rest of the population of our country. Who's, who is being trafficked? What is their country of origin? Or are they our own citizens? So I think we have to be clear on that and look much deeper than just that statement out there that says thousands of people are coming across our southern border to be trafficked. That doesn't ring true according to statistics that are available, and granted, statistics on this issue are hard to come by to have them be accurate, but I would start there and just pay attention to that fact. Um, may I ask the room, uh, who here is, un is 16 or under years of age? Wow, that's awesome. Like, about half the room, or maybe a little bit more than half mm. the room. Thank you so much. So I mentioned that my family is from Colombia. My aunt waited for a visa to the United States for 16 years. 16 years. To come legally. To come, to come to the United States with proper documentation, 16 years. Can you imagine living in a really difficult situation for your entire life and not being able to leave that situation? Can you imagine that? When we think about um, the, idea, the idea of abolishing ICE or abolishing human trafficking or abolishing slavery <laughs> or abolishing all sorts of terrible things, we really need to get to the, to the root cause of, of all, all of the issues of systemic oppression and realize that we are looking at white supremacy, we're looking at um, histories of genocide, we're looking at massive imperial um, military uh, powers that have exploited um, not just people but also lands, right? And we're looking at um, the profitization of uh, extractive industries that are hurting our climate. There's all sorts of factors that, that go into all of, all of this, these issues that result in trafficking and, uh, and uh, lots of asylum seekers at the U.S.-Mexico border and all sorts of things. And so if you can't imagine staying in a horrible situation for your entire life, then um, why would you imagine that for anyone else? You wouldn't. You, uh, you would hope not, right? So um, one, your last question about what has changed, right? Yeah. Um, I want to go back to that really quickly because n for the entire U.S. existence, we have not always had immigration laws. We have had, at many times in U.S. existence, completely open borders, right? And so, and that's what people talk about with Ellis Island, right? Lots of people um, who uh, settled in Cleveland were, were originally um, people who came to Ellis Island. And so the, that sort of uh, practice of open borders is something that we could get back to. It's not always been the way that we, the system hasn't been the way that, it's, that it is now. It hasn't always been that way. So um, if we talk a little bit more about um, the nuances, I think people, and if we talk about human stories, I think people can, um, can really find a way to, to come to dialogue. Um, yeah, I would definitely agree, and just to um, make maybe two points or two suggestions to piggyback off of um, what the other panelists have said. Um, the first, um, I think Ms. Stonebreaker has brought up a really good point about the causes of migration. Um, something that one of my mentors, um, another attorney, um, said to me once that had a real big impact on me was, people do things for reasons. 
right? Like I do things and I have a reason. Sometimes the reasons are good and sometimes they're bad, right? But they're, they're usually reasons for them. Um, I, I think that about myself. I think that about all of you. I also think that for my clients. Like my, my, my clients, uh, they want to live at home. They want to live in their home countries. Uh, they don't want to come to the United States, but they do because they have to in, in a lot of situations um, or because the, the alternative of staying is not, doesn't make sense for them and their families. Um, I, I think one option is uh, for us, the United States, um, to help make countries more livable so people don't have to come at all, right? Um, they don't have to make these terrible journeys of thousands of miles where they'll get, well, they'll walk here with their minor children, um, get robbed, um, exploited, uh, abused physically or sexually. Um, so that's one, just one thing to just think about, maybe keep in mind, um, consider from the other perspective. Um, and then the other thing, um, just a little bit to um, talk more about what I said in one of my first responses, again, we create our own immigration laws. And as uh, Ms. Stonebreaker mentioned, immigration laws have changed um, throughout the course of the United States history. It's possible that when my um, ancestors came to the United States, um, they, well, it's not possible, this is true. They didn't have to uh, run fingerprint checks. They didn't have to prove how much money they make. They didn't have to prove that they spoke English. These are all things that people do have to prove now, so the standards have kind of changed, um, and it's you know easier or harder for some people to come. Um, so I think we could maybe all agree, um, or just think about um, people being here without without permission or status um, is not what we want. Um, I would maybe suggest that the United States can consider how it, it could be easier for people to be here legally. Um, then that way people can come here as reflective of their needs and our own country's needs. Um, and they can run background checks and be here legally, um, be able to own property and pay into the system and have jobs and be able to call the police if they're victims of crime and just make the whole, the whole system work so that it works legally, right? So we don't have to have a wall. People, there's no wall to get over. People just come in legally, right? Um, so I, I just, um, what I've seen in the past uh, three years, what would make my job easier, also selfishly, um, is if it would be easier for people to come here legally. And again, we are in charge of that because we are in charge of our um, country's immigration rules. So what new frontiers are you guys seeing? What new aspects are coming in, in both human trafficking and immigration in general, that affect women? What's, what can we see over the next 10, 20 years that you think will have significant impacts on it? Whoever wants to respond. I mean, um, I'll just say briefly, um, I think the um, more significant abuses and victims being afraid to come forward, uh, unfortunately, will continue to be the same and maybe only get worse um, if the enforcement climate continues to be the way that it is. Um, and if things, I mean, if if people become scared to come forward, then they won't and they'll just suffer more years of, of abuse, um, and that won't help any of the current situation. People will continue to be undocumented and they'll continue to suffer, um, and our country will continue to have high levels of undocumented immigrants. Um, but I'm not sure if um, you two have any more um, detailed answers than that. Um, I would say I am really impressed with um, human rights leaders, civil, civil society leaders, um, that means civilians, people who are not affiliated with the military in any way, um, 
who are leading the fight for human dignity all over the world, and especially from Central America and Colombia, because that's what I look at uh, the most. Uh, human rights defenders are murdered in Colombia at rates higher than any other country in the world. And, um, and simply for being human rights defenders. And yet there has been a persistence, right, of decades and decades and decades of resistance to exploitation. And I currently see the massive groups of people who are coming to the United States border not necessarily being trafficked, but seeking just refuge and asylum as an iteration of uh, resistance, right? These there are thousands of people coming together to say, we're safer in numbers, right? We're safer um, when, we, when we travel together. And we're coming to the United States because we know um, you're all great with Google. Google the United Fruit Company and you'll learn a ton of information about how the United States and how multinational corporations and how all um, other governments as well have been involved in the um, result, like what ha the current iteration of, um, of violence in, in each of these countries, right? So I think um, what will change is people will be uh, continuing to speak out more, and I think people will continue to make the connections to the historical reasons for why people are fleeing violence today. I would say um, that one of the things that can help is that we recognize it's not just about the person who's coming, it's about all of us and our own awareness of the crime of human trafficking, who it affects, what to look for, what to do when we see it, and how do we respond? Who, who would we call for the sake of someone who's, whose life is in jeopardy? And so we're seeing that happen and that gives me some hope that people are becoming more aware. They are actually calling the National Human Trafficking Hotline whether, they're, whether the call is about a U.S. citizen or a foreign national, they're making those calls. And in terms of Ohio, we've stepped up. Mm -hmm. um, the calls from Ohio are fourth in the nation. Does that mean human trafficking is worse here? I'm thinking that perhaps more war we have become more aware here, and that's a good thing. There's a mix. Yes, it's going on. It's going on in every zip code, according to our friends in law enforcement, so we have to be aware of that. But it's also hopeful to me that people are stepping up to the plate, as you said. People across the country are wanting to learn about this and are no longer hiding their heads and thinking it doesn't, it would never happen in their neighborhood, because it does. And so the whole world is our neighborhood, when you think about it, because of globalization. We have a whole lot more work to do with our direct neighbors who live next door to us, but also across the nations, across the whole world, across our borders. Hello, my name is Natalie Grace Sapula. I am a senior at Andrews Osborne Academy and president of the Youth Forum Council. Today, we are enjoying a Youth Forum panel discussing women's experience with immigration, featuring Lisa Splowinski, staff attorney at the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland, Chrissy Stonebreaker-Martinez, co-coordinator at the Interreligious Task Force on Central America, and Sister Anne Victory, director of education for the Collaborative to End Human Trafficking. Our moderator is Sam Lehman, Youth Forum Council member. We are about to begin the audience Q&A. 
We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, or those of you joining us via our live stream. If you would like to tweet your question, please tweet it to at City Club Youth, and we'll ask as time allows. We ask that your questions be brief, to the point, and actual questions. If you have a question, please raise your hand, and one of our microphone holders will come over to you. Holding microphones today are Youth Forum Council members Maria Kondratova and Sophia Boyer. May we have the first question, please. Um, more specifically for Ms. Splowinski, you spoke many times that this is in our hands, that the laws of this country are in our hands, and Congress and government in general has been unable for decades to make any real progress on immigration reform. What can we do to make that change, and in your eyes, how specifically is it in our hands? Great question. Um, I, um, I was at first a little bit... Um, Fearful, not fearful, but um, anticipating speaking um, with a group of students because this this kind of issue will be a, a huge part of y'all's lives. Like it's not changing going forward, right? You and me, to a certain extent, I'm a little bit older than you guys, but you know our generation um, is going to be continuing to experience these issues and hopefully come up with a solution. Um, so, as you rightfully pointed out. Um, immigration laws have not been passed for years. Um, and actually, to a point that we have been talking about earlier, the last time a major immigration reform law was passed um, was 1997. That was a long time ago at this point. And the last time that um, immigrant visa numbers, which are the uh, numbers of people who are allowed to come into the United States, was rearranged was 1950. So that is decades ago at this point, as does not, some might say, reflect our current needs or uh, of the United States. So um, it, to your actual question um, about what we can all do, um, I think the, the easy, but maybe not um, easy, easy in practice answer is to, you know, vote for people who have our, your interests at heart and who you think will be able to um, reflect what you want with immigration and get um, laws like that passed. I think the other thing um, that um, my other uh, panelists might have more direct experience with is if this is an issue that's important to you, um, and I think it should be important to all of us because um, it is such a big issue and it affects everyone in the, in the world and the United States is um, talk to other people about their views about immigration. Um, because when I, you know, when I tell people that I'm an immigration attorney, I've sometimes learned to not do that at all because I don't, um, I get a lot of um, the people's opinions about uh, you know, what they think about me and my job and the people that I help um, that are sometimes not welcome. But if you, you know, if you take the time to engage people um, and talk to them about your experience with immigrants, if you're an immigrant yourself, you know, just to talk to, to people about other people, um, I think that changes attitudes, which then collectively gives us back the power to be able to make changes that we want to see. Um, I'm, I'll also, though, um, if my panelists have anything else to add, I think um, I've said plenty. I'm so grateful that you mentioned that, and I was actually hoping that you would or would expand upon this. Um, voter suppression is uh, key to changing any um, social injustice uh, and any law around um, uh, to address social injustice in our in our world. So voter suppression um, has impacted the entire nation, right? We know that there are certain laws that have been created to make it more difficult to vote, and that has. Um, uh, impacted specifically marginalized communities. And one thing that Ohio 
Um, there are many things that I'm disappointed on about in Ohio, um, but one thing that I think that Ohio is um, really leading the nation on is addressing issues of, of gerrymandering, right? We're the first um, state in the union to have a bipartisan council um, to start to look at our state-identified uh, districts, um, and so this is for the Ohio legislature, but uh, we know that Ohio is, is really um, prime for doing that on the congressional level as well. And so um, that's something that people should get involved in and in getting involved in um, dismantling voter, voter suppression and in, uh, empowering voters generally to, to find people who are representatives who really fit their, their values and ideals and who will really represent them um, will um, impact not just immigration reform, but all sorts of reform like criminal justice reform and other things that are really, really very necessary in our communities. And I would concur with what both of you have said. And even though many of you are not yet able to vote, it's important to learn how to use your voice and your influence now. Keep learning about the issues, where you stand on them, and exercise your, your right to vote when you can, but also talk with your parents or your uh, brothers and sisters who may be older than you who are saying, ah, I'm not gonna vote. Yes, it's important to vote and help them understand why because these are the issues of our time and your time into the future. So it, it becomes very necessary to help influence how our laws are and how they are enforced. And I'm sorry, one more thing to add um, quickly because it's important I wanna mention before I forget. I think sometimes local and state politics gets lost in this conversation as well because we view immigration as a national or federal kind of issue. But the way that, yeah, um, immigration, immigrants um, and we and immigrants interact with a variety of different organizations, systems and agencies here in, the, in Ohio as well. Um, so if you um, are concerned, any of you are concerned about you know, immigrants, how they're treated, how um, they can live here in the United States, work with local police, for example, about um, responding to immigrant victims of crime or working you know, to do immigration enforcement, things like that. Um, work with local government to um, pass maybe state ID laws that allow immigrants to get IDs even though they don't have um, legal you know, papers or whatever papers to show at the BMV. Um, again, immigrants are both f affected at a local level and a national level. And I think, like I said, the local level gets forgotten sometimes. Hi, I'm a school counselor in Cleveland and also part of Gen X. I don't have, I understand how important voting is. I don't have a lot of faith though in, in maybe my generation and then the older ones um, in specifically combating this, um, this fear and this othering toward people who are coming in and people who are already in this country. So what suggestions might you have for my students and the other young people in the room to really um, foster and encourage empathy? Um, because I think if that's not there, then the, the voting's really not going to change. Thanks. <clears throat> um, what a great question. I think uh, storytelling is really moving, and it's really important to dispel um, the myths that, and the, narr uh, the narratives that have been created in society, right? So um, we are a nation of immigrants and people who were forcibly displaced from their homes and, and put under forced work, that's called slavery, and uh, indigenous people, right? So that's one myth, right? But 
But most of us came here, most of us are not from here, or at least not totally from here, because unfortunately, one of the most massive genocides in the world happened, um, happened on this soil. Um, it's important to tell us the individual stories too, right? Like uh, there's a, a young girl. Who, how many people here have heard of Malala? Hopefully everyone, right? Malala um, was shot by the Taliban and survived, and she's been a fierce advocate for women's rights and educational rights, et cetera. There's a young girl who is 13 years old who was killed in, El in Honduras, I'm sorry, um, just a few years ago. Her name is Nicole Soad Bustio Ham, and she was killed because she went on the local television and asked for chairs and desks in her, in her school. And so if you tell people that story, right, and if you Google her and learn more about her story, then people might really understand a little bit more about, like, the harsh reality of what is happening to individuals, right? And when we make it about ourselves, too, when we find a way to connect ourselves to that, then we can be much more persuasive, right? The, uh, the Interreligious Task Force on Central American Columbia, IRTF Cleveland, on social media, if you go to irtfcleveland.org, we take on six urgent human rights cases every month, and we publish those for you all to see. They're listed there already. And so you can read the stories of six individuals or families or communities, small communities, um, every single month to really keep an eye out on what is the context that people are fleeing right now. Uh, and I think that that, that, torp that type of um, personalism is what will be um, what will ground us all in empathy and compassion uh, going forward. I think another thing is very, very simple, really. It sounds simple, but I guess it takes some courage. Get to know someone who you don't know in your own school. Get to know the person. Hear their story. Look out for that one who seems to be isolated in some manner or nobody sits with at lunchtime. Find out more about that person see what's going on with them, share your own story, because then you build a relationship that takes you out of just pointing at that other as someone bad, or I don't want to be with that person because they're different from me. Well, difference is our blessing, really. When you think about it, we'd be pretty bored if we were all the same. And we have so much richness when we can look out and see who else is living with us in this great diverse country and welcome that as a gift to all of us. So it's a challenge, but it may be something that as a counselor you can help students do. Um, I definitely agree and wanted to also thank you for that question because um, it, in my experience the othering and fear is a huge motivator um, and it's very easy to base everything on that um, kind of viewpoint um, instead of taking, I mean, taking the time to understand things in a personal level. Um, so for example, I, you know, have many clients and I hear the same stories and meet with the same people every day. That's a benefit that I have of, of working and I, so I can talk to people directly and I know who immigrants look like and I know what the stories are because I hear them every day. But for people who don't and who are isolated from that, um, I guess a suggestion, and I wrestle with this, um, that, that same question myself as well. So I don't, if I had a great answer, who <laughs> I might be doing something different. But um, I, I guess the suggestion that I have is um, in 
forums like this and in your local forums um, and groups that you have access to in your own families and schools and local politics and with your friend groups, anyone that you have access to, um, it bring people with those stories in uh, when you have the opportunity to do so. Um, like it would be, you know, great and when we, for example, um, Legal Aid has panels or um, other things as well. We try to get our clients there to for them to say directly themselves, explain, you know, their own story. Um, so you can you put a face to things and you hear directly from people's mouths and um, what they've experienced. It's a lot harder to say like, oh, you're lying if the person is there telling them themselves. Um, so I, I guess that would be my recommendation and um, and to go back to what we were talking about in the last question um, to really make it local as well, focus on what you can do in your own community, what you have access to, to bring that information to other people that you have access to. That's a daily hard decision though, guys, and it'll, we have to do it every day and uh, for the rest of our lives until the problem gets better. So just think about that <laughs> when you go home and um, for the rest of the year and um, I wish you luck in it and I will try to do the same for myself as well. Yeah, really quickly, uh, to add, in a world of Snapchat and Instagram and Twitter, we really um, consume information at, at very small, in very small doses, right? And uh, I would say that it's important to have some of those ready, um, those facts that you can pull out of your pocket. Sister Anne has already defined some of them at the beginning of the panel. Women are much more likely to be naturalized. Women, uh, immigrant women are much more likely to own businesses than, um, than women who are natural born citizens, right? Uh, immigrants in general are much more, uh, are much less likely, like, like tens of percents likely, um, much less likely to commit a crime, right? All of those facts are important things for people to have ready when someone says, that you're lying. Um, you know, there, there are lots of different organizations that have done lots of lots and lots of research that um, we can look to, to to sort of back us up, right? Okay. So, Ms. Stonebreaker, you mentioned the storytelling a couple of times. Would you like to uh, elaborate on that? Maybe give us one or two? Oh, sure. Just one or two. And one or two, geez. Ah. Um, a little bit about um, my own story. I mentioned that uh, my family's from Colombia. Uh, Colombia has been in a civil war uh, since 1964. Uh, some people say that that civil war is over, though negotiations have not taken place with all of the um, violent actors involved yet. And um, violence actually started in 1948 with the assassination of a leftist presidential candidate. And I would say that violence really started with colonialism, right? And there are over 70 different indi uh, indigenous communities in Colombia, and half of them are in danger of becoming extinct, right? So my family, my, um, my mom grew up in Medellin. It's the second largest city in Colombia, and most people know it because uh, it's the home of the infamous Pablo Escobar and the height of the violence of the Civil War in the 80s and 90s. Um, I grew up in Youngstown in uh, a place where uh, we had the highest per capita homicide rate in the country when I was the same age that my mom was suffering through the highest homicide rate in the world. 
uh, in a world completely different and thousands of miles away, right? Um, I was experiencing the same systemic violence and witnessing violence on, uh, uh, firsthand, which is why I've decided to commit my life to working on human rights issues. Um, it is a tremendous blessing for me that my aunt had the support of a family, family members in the United States, and she could wait out 16 years to, to get her visa. But not all of my family members could do that at different times in the conflict. Um, there were times in the conflict that people just needed to be moved very quickly. There were curfews in Medellin. And we've heard of places of conflict and um, torture and civil uh, war and violence all over the world. These stories have been replicated over and over and over again. And we've heard of the types of tactics of torture that have been used. And we've heard of the tactics of of um, targeting women, and we've heard of tactics of, of people having curfews, you know, grown adults having curfews, um, all these different, these different things. And so, so part of the reason why I'm in this work is because of my personal connection to it. Um, but also, I am inspired by um, women, human rights defenders especially, but human rights defenders of any gender all over the world. Um, there's a woman named Berta Cáceres who was the Goldman Environmental Prize winner. That's like the Nobel Peace Prize for environmentalism um, in 2015. And in 2016, uh, in March, so her th the third anniversary of her death, um, she, was, she was murdered in the middle of the night um, by people who have actually, it's been found, uh, to be trained and funded by the United States government. Berta Cáceres is her name. Remembering the names of these people is really, really, really important, right? And remembering the aspects of different stories, and I just like abbreviated that story so much because of the sake of time. But remembering the aspects of stories that connect to our own identities is also really important. And I think that people are compelled, really, by storytelling, and not just compelled um, when they hear stories, but people are also compelled when they understand their own story. We cannot um, be people who are civically engaged trying to change the world for the better if we're not also doing that within ourselves, right? And understanding what's internalized, what internalized oppression looks like within ourselves and what our identities um, have brought us to uh, care about, right? The Interreligious Task Force, we focus on six different countries in Central America, but we connect the issues of those six countries to what's happening all over the world. I observed um, border bombings and elections in Iraqi Kurdistan uh, in September because uh, I know that democracy in Iraqi Kurdistan will uplift democracy everywhere, right? And I know that, um, that when I go observe elections in El Salvador, um, which I've done in the past, that I'm also trying to promote the same kind of thing, real just self-determination and, and autonomy um, for people, for individuals, right? And I know that those things are connected. So we only focus on six countries, but we and we're the interreligious task force, which means all faith or no faith and no faith, right? Whatever morally grounds you, bring that to the table to address social injustices because that is that is the only way you'll be genuine and authentic, and that's the only way you'll be passionate enough to like 
continue to keep up your motivation and your drive and um, it will really help you find whatever the issue or niche that you're going to be working on in your life, um, th whatever that will be. Thanks for your question. One of my clients that has stuck out. Um, in I work here in Cleveland now, but um, I was working in San Antonio doing immigration for a while, which is like is sort of the center of where immigration is really happening. It's happening everywhere, but it's really happening um, along the border, of course. Um, and I part of my job was to um, go to an immigration detention center, um, similar to the one that um, Ms. Stonebreaker was talking about. Uh, but in San Antonio, it's called Carnes. It houses um, about a thousand women um, or detains, um, as she said, um, a thousand and women and their children who are not criminals. They're just here to apply for asylum. So again, I will let that sink in. They're not, they have not, not committed any crimes, but they're being held in a jail to, to apply for asylum. Um, so again, I'll just briefly mention, it doesn't, the government has decided to do that, um, but it doesn't have to be that way. So just something to think about. But um, one of the, the first step to apply for asylum usually is to um, have a pre-interview with an asylum officer called a credible fear interview. And the, the, um, usually it's the woman, um, the mother will explain, basic, like give, give a summary of why she's afraid to go back home. And if the officer believes you, then they're allowed to leave um, jail and continue to fight their case in immigration court. So that first interview is just the first step, but it's to make sure that there, people are not lying, basically. So that's a part of the asylum process. I was um, listening to a woman who um, fled either Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras. Um, I'm sorry, I forget at this point, but there we met with a lot of women. Um, and they're like very similar yes, places, yeah, and it's called the Northern Triangle, Triangle, so they're yeah. really connected yeah. yeah, in that way. Yep. Um, but her story just um, sticks out to me again. I must have met with a thousand women um, while I was down there, um, but. She um, was almost throwing up because she was crying so hard. I might start crying, I'm sorry. Um, she, had, she was terrified that she would not get out of jail because she told me she was forced to prostitute herself to pay, support her family um, to be able to collect enough money to get out of home country. And that wasn't even the reason that she fled. That was just a separate abuse that she was afraid about. And she was so scared to even tell me that that happened because she thought she wouldn't be able to apply for asylum. So again, and again, the, the asylum part was that she had been um, threatened with death several times by gang members down there. So these are, again, multiple levels of abuse that people are suffering. Um, and I didn't even ask her about the trip up here. It's possible she was also, you know, a victim of a crime on the way up here. So these are these um, are the kinds of things that people are experiencing, and they're not making it up. And um, they can't, people can't live like that. So um, again, these are the kinds of stories that I think are particularly poignant. I was just curious, we've been discussing a lot today about uh, women's immigration rights on the national level as well as in Ohio, but what specific challenges do women face coming from different borders? So from the southern border or coming from the northern border or even overseas immigrants, what specific challenges are women facing in different areas? Challenges are, so I was at the southern border, um, I can speak briefly about the challenges there. Um, 
it, a lot of, um, as Ms. Stonebreaker mentioned, a lot of um, um, most of the people who are seeking asylum at the southern border are coming, fleeing um, bad or horrific violence. Um, and the one way that you can, or the way that you can claim asylum is to go to the border where there's an actual wall and there are border agents and things and present yourself and say, I'm afraid to go home. Um, and then they'll put you in the immigration jail that I was describing and um, with your family sometimes, or you're separated from your family. Um, and you go through the, um, the, the asylum process. Um, while I was down in San Antonio, um, there were stories of people, immigration agents at the border, turning women away, people away, and saying, like, you can apply for asylum, which is against our asylum laws. Um, so that's one challenge, like not even being able to be given the opportunity. Um, also right now, um, the government is, in some parts of the United States, so just in California, um, not letting people into the United States while they apply for asylum, but forcing them to stay in Mexico during the asylum process, which can take many years. Um, and in Mexico, it is unclear if people are safe or if they have access to immigration attorneys to help them. Um, so that's another um, challenge. And then the third challenge um, that I'll just mention briefly and then um, uh, my panelists might want to talk more about it is the, the family separation issue where mothers um, and, and fathers, but mostly mothers, were being separated from their children um, and taken to two completely different immigration detention facilities or jails, like thousands of miles across or apart from each other um, during the asylum process. And um, again, there have been stories that immigration has um, used that separation to force people to say that they'll go back home, like take deportation orders instead of applying for asylum and things like that, um, which again cuts off people's rights to apply for asylum. So those are three main um, challenges that I've seen recently. To just expand upon those challenges a little bit, and um, just so you know, um, there is a for-profit detention center here in Northeast Ohio the Northeast Ohio Correctional Center is run by CoreCivic, which used to be called the Corrections Corporations of America. And there are hundreds of beds allocated specifically for uh, immigrants, and that's in Youngstown, Ohio. I currently have clients there, just to um, <laughs> let you all know that she's not lying. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so that's part of our story, is knowing that we have these institutions right in our backyard. There's an Immigrations and Customs Enforcement Facility here in Brooklyn Heights, Ohio, 925 Keynote Circle. There's a vigil every at 4 o'clock on every Thursday if you want to join. Um, but that's a check-in facility. So that's, uh, that's a facility that was used to ha uh, detain people temporarily when uh, Cleveland had, or not Cleveland, but Northern Ohio had two um, massive over 100 person raids last summer in June, uh, just 10 days apart, um, both in um, Northwest Ohio and Northeast Ohio. Um, and then to expand a little bit more, uh, Lisa's already mentioned that, so I spent time in, um, in Tijuana, San Diego area, in uh, Ambos Nogales, that means both Nogaleses, and there's a Nogales in Arizona and Nogales in Sonora, and then as well um, in West Texas uh, and in, um, in South Texas. And so uh, we get around, we do a lot of public liturgy and a lot of uh, street theater and uh, witnessing at immigration detention centers. And uh, Lisa is definitely not lying when she says that uh, people are being 
uh, denied their legal right to asylum at the, the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, the one very obvious difference is that um, the U.S.-Canada border does not have a wall and does not have um, uh, in, enhanced border technology um, set up in the, in the mountains in Montana or in Ohio or in Michigan or in Wisconsin. That is only along the southern um, border and, uh, of the U.S. border with Mexico. And there's a reason for that. I think that's, uh, that has to do heavily with racism. Um, uh, among many other things. And so uh, this, this denial of people to get their legal right to asylum, which is you must present yourself on U.S. soil to ask for asylum, right? And this denial has been documented by at least two female congressional representatives in our House of Representatives. Um, just this week, Google, Google that. Um, I don't remember actually the representative's names. I know one was from Florida. Um, but they have really beautifully, I think Behringer is one of them, um, they have really beautifully uh, documented with their, just their camera phones, um, border patrol agents who were denying um, women and children and men and families entrance to, um, to their asylum hearings, to their initial, to their credible fear hearing. Good afternoon. I'm Orimilo Orisania, a member of the Youth Forum Council, and today we have been enjoying a youth forum on women's roles, rights, and stories through immigration. All City Club Youth Forums are sponsored by AT&T. We appreciate your continued support for our student programming. We welcome students from Andrew Osborne's Academy, Bard High School, Early College Cleveland, Citizens Leadership Academy, MC Squared STEM High School, and Westlake High School. Support for student participation in City Club forums comes from KeyBank and the William M. Weiss Foundation, with additional support from the donors you'll find listed in today's program. We thank you all for being here today. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Ms. Flawinski, Ms. Stonebreaker Martinez, Sister Victory, and Mr. Lehman. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.